I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number two. Welcome to the second Life in Dub podcast, a new series of in-depth interviews with people who've lived their lives in dub and reggae. Firstly, I really want to thank everyone personally for the amazing support you've given the first episode where I interviewed Keaty Roots. Thanks for the emails and messages. It's great to hear what you made of it and really nice to hear such positive feedback about the podcast idea in general and about Keaty's own unique story. So keep those messages coming in and let me know what you think about the podcast. You can subscribe to the show wherever you pick up your podcasts whether that's Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and you can email me at vibronics at gmail.com and visit the website lifeindub.com. So what have I been up to? I've generally been getting ready for the new year, the new decade, 2020. I was lucky enough to finish off the last decade with a couple of weeks in Mexico for some shows with Alpha Stepper and Danai, as well as a load of recording for a new album project you'll be hearing much more about soon. Mexico has really become an important place for sound system dub and reggae over the last 10 years. So respect to Ruticle Sessions and all the sound system crews over there making this happen. Anyone thinking about a trip to Mexico, I highly recommend it. It's an amazing country. The big project for 2020 is the new collaboration Vibronics meets Weeding Dub called Note for Note, Dub for Dub. We made some great tracks together in the old dub cupboard studio and we're gonna be releasing them and we're gonna be doing a whole load of live shows together. I'll be talking more about this over the coming weeks and you can check Facebook and Instagram for more info. My guest this week is Nick Manassa, truly a legendary figure in the UK reggae music scene since the 1980s. We sat down in his London studio and talked about his sound system days, the enduring influence of his KISS FM radio show and of course about his music productions over the years. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. I'll start that again. Welcome, Nick Manassa. Welcome, Nick Manassa, to the Life in Dub podcast. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, talking to people about their lives in dub and reggae. So we're here in West London. Are we yeah, in West yeah, London? Yeah, yeah, we're in the middle of West London. I yeah. just come from the east, you see, so yeah. I'm a bit like, yeah. uh, a, bit, a bit confused. Underneath the Westway roundabout. And when, what, when we're in your studio, what, 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 what do we call your studio? The Yard. The yard, okay. Yeah, if, you have, if anybody ever comes here, they'll see why we're in a kind of compound with um, mechanics and and a couple of other little studios, clampers, all kinds. Yeah. No, it's a it's a kind of yeah. it's definitely a vibesy place. Yeah, definitely. Is, yeah, yeah. But what what I want to do, what I'm trying to do with the podcast with each guest is to ask them to. The first thing is to ask them about a song or a track kind of changed their life. They listened to it and after that, there was no going back and it could be something that you listened to like last week or when you were a child, anything, but something, a track you heard and after that, it kind of changed everything. So, I don't know if you want to tell the people about uh, a track Okay, like yeah, that. yeah. So, there's, there's definitely one that I would always say um, which is that in the late 70s and I would have been 10 or 11, um, is when Virgin Frontline really started putting out a lot of good music that wasn't just Bob Marley and the big bands. It, you know, the, the Virgin was sort of signing, you know, genuine roots stuff. And they put out an album with Iroy called Heart of a Lion. And the title track of that, Heart of a Lion, is still one of my absolute golden tracks for the sound, for Iroy's DJing, um, 
it's just a, an amazing tune. It's an amazing tune. It's an amazing production. I mean, it's it's not. I now know that 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 tune was not produced for Iroy. That you know that Harry J had a it's a Harry J production. Harry J had a bunch of rhythm tracks, and you know Iroy rode on them. Uh, but nevertheless, there's something about the sort of silky sound of those drums, and um, there's a sort of softness to Harry J productions that I, that I really love. I, I often think that Harry J is one of my favourite sounding studios from that era. Um, and I was, actually, I was very privileged to mix the last ever record last year that was recorded at Harry J Studio. Um, sadly. A great record. Did you go to Jamaica to do that? No I, no, I mixed it here, but it was recorded there. Yeah. Nice. And so, w were you already a fan of reggae at that point, or did that kind of turn you? No, that it? kind of bought bought me in, and that was so. That was the period, let's say, of just before the sort of two tone era. So I was getting sort of drawn into reggae by bands like The Clash and The Specials, like a lot of people of my age would, would say that, that they kind of, you know, that people from a non-West Indian background, um, you know, might get drawn in in that way. Um, and the Iro record kind of came across as something like just completely like, what is, what is this? What is he talking about? What is this voice that sounds like God? I mean, it's an incredible voice and... Um, you know, now I know more about the context of that record and, you know, I understand more about the sort of, you know, the influences on people like Iroy coming from America might have been and with the, you know, jazz poets and stuff and whatever. But I'm just saying, yeah, that that, that record was just something totally off the scale. Um, and then I would cite another one, actually. One, one more. Well, you're only allowed one, but seeing, oh, okay. seeing, seeing you're a special guy, Nick, just oh, for you. Well, the other one would be, we all knew the track Good Thing Going by Sugar Minot, but the 12-inch has a dub on the other side, and I always say that that is the first dub record that I ever heard, and it's a, it stands up today, that dub. That is a great dub mix. Because it was a big um, hit here. It was on top of the pop. Massive, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, massive. And totally, out, for me, outshines the... Um, the Jackson's version, the Jackson 5 version. I mean, Good Thing Going is just it's one of the ultimate UK reggae productions, actually. I mean, it's a fantastic record. Um, but the dub mix is called Bad Things, and it is dangerous. And, and you remember when that came out and when it was like a hit and stuff, do you? I don't really or? remember when it came out. I just remember it was around, uh, you know, a, a, a woman that I was hanging around with a lot at that time, had the 12-inch, and I remember listening to it. I was 15. Or fourteen or fifteen, it's like that was the first dub record that I heard. So that was your kind of way into like yeah. reggae and dub was kind yeah. of like sort of seeing the difference between the A side and the B side. It's like okay, because uh -huh. yeah. obviously in that time, reggae was a really big thing as well. It's it was yeah. I mean, I think it's e it's easy to think um, for people of my generation that you know we bought a lot of you know the, the white people, people from outside the. Um, traditional reggae community the West Indian community we, you know that we were the first ones to get into reggae it's not true at all there was a big you know big reggae scene in the in the late 70s um, and you know lot, lots of what lots of lots of people from non-West Indian backgrounds were into reggae at that time we used to go to shows and you know I remember my, my sister the same one who had the Iroy album she went to see Prince Farai at the venue which is a beautiful venue in Victoria it's just called The Venue um, she went to see Prince Farai in 1976 and she wasn't even particularly into it. 
but I guess you had things like Frontline and obviously Island Records and stuff. Yeah. It's like they were marketing like yeah. sort of Jamaican music to like the sort of student yeah. and white music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was audience. all about. Yeah, it was all about. It was all about. Um, you know, getting getting records to cross over, which 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 they, which they achieved. You know, with like Dennis Brown, money in my pocket, good thing going. Um, obviously, the Bob Marley albums, yeah, um, Uptown Top Ranking, Uptown and... Top Ranking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that in the shop and just not really understanding. You know, it's like I just <laughs> didn't really know. You know, but it's like this amazing record. You know, so um, so where did so. Growing up, did you grow up in London? Or? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, reggae I grew up was in Kingston, actually. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So reggae was around, I guess, and it was around. Yeah, it was around, and uh, there was a time. Um, my mum died at the beginning of '78, and my dad moved us from the suburbs into central London, and that's when I began to just sort of. Here, reggae, reggae was around, and I began, you know, that coincided with that whole. I sometimes call it the sort of two tone summer of '79, and um, and yeah, I remember sort of, you know, just yeah, it was just around. You heard it, you heard it coming, the skank coming out of places, and you know, being. Well, there's a big thing in the road. middle and stuff. The two tone, obviously, commentary, yeah, the special, yeah, exactly, and, yeah, yeah. And in terms of like music, because you know, we're sitting here in your studio, and you're renowned music producer and but but a musician and, and a, a writer of music so what when how did you get involved in like making music and what how did that all come about uh i and playing music and like the earliest I'd always, kind of start i'd always played an instrument from quite a young age i think i was about nine when i started learning flute at school and i kind of stuck with it you know i did it for a few years i even got as far as sort of you know, doing my first grades exam or something like that. And I still play a bit of flute. Um, I'm sure I hear some on your records. That's yeah, really... so a lot of that would be me, yeah. Um, so you were learning that at school? So and... I learned that at school and I learned how to read a bit. But, you know, it's more that it just, you know, if you if you study music a bit, it just you just learn a bit about music. You sort of get, you know, you kind of get the hang of it. Um, and then a couple of years later... I started learning classical guitar, taught the conventional way, like, you know, playing sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, pieces, you know, sort of Bach pieces or whatever that, that you would you would play in a sort of traditional school lesson. Sort of. Holding it in that special yeah, way. Yeah, it's all, it's all about the... Um, the open strings when you when you learn like that and then I remember my guitar teacher just casually showing me a bar chord and he was like look you can just slide this up all the way you know it's like oh okay um, now I can play any song yeah yeah um, and obviously now I never play on the open strings at all it's always, it's always you know on the, on the, on the bars and um, so I learned a bit of guitar and that's as far as it went with me with actual music teaching um, I taught myself keyboards um, and my sort of knowledge of chords is is pretty good, you know. And I, you know, I sort of understand um, a lot of the sort of you know the kind of theory of it, the sort of maths of it, kind of bit, not in a kind of analytical way, but I kind of understand it. You know, you kind of get it. Well, I'd say uh, there's there's a, there's like a musicality in the music you produce as well. It's not like you know one finger dub. It's obviously there. You can hear that there's some playing going on. Yeah. Even yeah, if it's like digital stuff. You can still hear there's some playing. I think. 
I get bored easily. I have to keep <laughs> myself interested. Um, and in a way, it's sort of, you know, one of my kind of, I don't know, it's a sort of, yeah, it's a mixed blessing. In a way, sometimes I'm sort of like, I'm just sort of not really capable of sort of, you know, doing sort of, you know, sometimes, especially in the sound system world, it's simple tunes work really well. Um, and, but, you know, I do, I do what I do. And, you know. So in terms of playing reggae, so you, you, yeah. you were learning some guitar and flute and stuff, and yeah. then, and how did you get into actually playing reggae? I mean, what, what was all that about? Um, what was all that about? Well, um, actually, in a funny kind of way, it was a sort of necessity because that we'd um, built a sound system and we'd been playing out for a year or something, and I wanted some dub plates, you know, Okay, um, so so let's just rewind that a little because the sound system, because that's something else I wanted to yeah. talk to you about as well. And for some reason, in my head, without doing any research and asking you about it, I always yeah. kind of thought maybe the sound system came later, but that that came first. No, the sound system came first. When it when it comes to actually what you're talking about, like hiring a studio and doing a couple of little productions and stuff, no, that that came after the sound system, but only just after. Okay, I think I was always starting to be up for it mm -hmm. I was starting to sort of listen to tunes I'd, I'd kind of you know in a different way I'd bought myself a little melodica and I was you know playing along to Augustus Pablo records and figuring out the chords you know probably actually that melodica helped me a lot with learning learning piano chords um and that's why it was invented I guess wasn't yeah. it as a way to have a keyboard yeah, yeah. um and then, yeah, I just started going, you know, there were a few mates of mine who had, who had like little four-track setups, cassette four-track setups, and start doing a bit of that. And um, and eventually, yeah, I kind of had an idea for a tune, and I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to book a bit of studio time. And I booked a, a, um, a, like a little 16-track studio, and the guys in there um, were really cool, and they helped me a lot. Um, and that was your, your first time in a studio, would you say? That was definitely my first time in a proper studio, yeah, yeah, with, um, you know, with a sort of live room and kind of, you know, um, a Your studio life isn't, isn't for everybody, obviously, and did, it, no. did, did that make any sort of connection with you, like, going to the studio and seeing it all done and the magic of the, the equipment and everything, was that? Yeah, it was, um, I remember it so vividly. Um, was I hooked right from the start? Yeah, I think I was, and I, th I think... One thing I did, which is um, probably looking back, is probably quite a good thing. Is um, I didn't sort of, you know, twing around for years and years doing loads of tunes and not being happy with any of them. I did a couple of tunes and I worked those tunes, and and they came out. They were released, and I've always had a sort of a bit of a, you know. I don't work on stuff if I'm not going to use it. You know, it's it's it's, it's all going to get used. And but I do recognise in people a kind of thing of sort of you know they've got a little collection of tunes. They work them and work them and work them. They're never quite happy. Yeah, nood yeah, endlessly noodling and not, not yeah. quite because it's, it's never easy to know when something's finished. And yeah. I think would you say that? Like back in the days of renting a studio and stuff, is it had to be finished, so that that helped that process of of finishing it. 
I think so. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think I think the 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 money thing helps with that as well. That you that you're paying studio time quite a lot, you know, and you you're gonna you're gonna use it, you know. It's um and maybe paying someone who knows what they're doing as well, so you can get it done yeah, quickly. I was doing that. I was paying. Yeah, there was a couple of Spanish guys that ran that studio. Um, actually, you know what? I, I should correct myself. Actually, the first time I probably rented studio time was actually at Jatubby's just before that, um, and. Yeah, Cecil was in there. He was a guy who used to do a lot of Tubby's music and Joe from Abishanti, they were there. Um, and and then, yeah, everything was sort of compatible. A lot of people were using half-inch 16 tracks so you could take it from one studio to another. Um, and, uh, yeah, what, so one of the tunes that was from that session at Tubby's, that, that got used. Um, yeah, yeah. So there was a, there was a plan. So when you started making these tunes and booking the studio, there, there was a plan that you you wanted to get these out somehow, and there was a, a plan to somehow do something with them. There was definitely a, a thing, you know. So we're talking about kind of in the middle of the eighties that there was a big sort of dub plate thing with sound systems. You had to have dubs, you know, and people people really responded to them as well. And you play you play out dubs, people sort of somehow know, or they did then. They did. It's probably a bit different now because you, you can. That maybe there was something a bit less polished about those dubs or what, whatever it was. People knew that it could pick up that you were playing the sort of special tune. And I remember taking one of those dubs to a little house party we were doing in Tottenham somewhere and and playing it, and it just it just went off. And I had to pull back that tune. Umpteen. This is times. one of your tunes. Yeah, it was what became Seventh Seal. Actually, there, there was a, a slower version of Seventh Seal, and it was that. Um, and what happened was that I began to, we sort of like moving around different studios. I began to sort of, you know, book a lot more studio time. And, um, at the same time, Ray Chetty, who used to represent Wackies in the UK, he had put out, uh, a slightly later version of Seventh Seal on his label, Mystic Red. And... And then me and my partner Scruff, who was set, who became Sound Duration, we were like, okay, we're going to do more stuff, and we're going to do an album for Ray. Um, and and in the end, um, when it when we were ready, Ray couldn't do it, so we ended up doing it with another label, um, and uh, which was run by Youth from Killing Joke and Alex from the Orb, and they put out the Sound Duration album, and. And that's it from there, you know. There were quite sort of heady days, I guess, of like this new kind of UK dub, UK reggae stuff that's like using a lot more technology, but it's got a connection to the kind of original Jamaican roots music. It was the very beginning of that scene, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I often, you know, describe myself as the sort of beginning of the drum machine era, you know, that I, I kind of... Um, in a way, that's why I like I like I like doing a lot of live music now because I'm coming from that sort of drum machine, you know, the, the, the drum machine place. So I like um, I've like had enough of drum stuff. machine. Yes, yeah. um, exactly. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, it was um, it was it was it was it was a definite change. I think that a lot of the sort of UK dub music that had been coming out from before. From let's say from Mad Professor and Shaka, um, was was all live. It was um, 
a lot of it actually was it was um, my my friend, the late great Elroy Bailey, um, played bass on the first um, Ten Commandments dub album. And it's like the Vasimbas and Vasimbas, a lot of London music, but it it wasn't drum machine. No, it was live, and it had a very particular sound to it. And yeah, I suppose we just came along like kind of young kids do, and they just sort of do something different, you know. But um, it's interesting because it was new. Because um, now, you know, I still call it MIDI. You know, when the computer talks to yeah. the, the synthesizers and yeah. drum machines, and anybody who's listening is not like ma massively technical. It's kind of the way that the computer controls everything was like it's been like that for a long time. But in this period, you're talking about it was quite a new thing. Yeah, it was very new. Yeah, it really was new. Um, yeah, there was there was no memory, you know. God, I remember, you know, I worked through the whole ninety, the whole of the nineties on an Atari that had two meg of memory. I mean, that's just it seems crazy now, but um, yeah, it was it was very new, and you know, people would go to amazing lengths to sort of customize their Oberheim drum machine or you know what whatever it was. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was hybrid. You know, it wasn't digital. Actually, it was, you know, it was analog recording. We were all using tape and analog desks and stuff. The only bit that was digital was the actual, the way that the little sample in the drum machine was recorded. That was the only thing that was digital about. Yeah, or maybe the synthesizer called, or something. Or perhaps the actual, the sequencing. You know, yeah, and the synths, well, you know, when I started, it was literally, the DX7 was about to come out. That is actually not a digital keyboard. Um... Uh, we used to use a piano sound off a off a thing called a Mirage, and that that was digital, Is that like Ensonic. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Just to show my uh, geeky credentials. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good piano sound actually. Um, yeah, but so what was actually digital? That anyway, people call it digital. You know, the, the Jamaicans they they you know, call it digital. Yeah, because you've got a drum machine and it's, it's, and it's sequenced. It might be and... keyboard bass as well, you know. But the keyboard bass would have been analog. Yeah, Definitely for sure. always was, you know. And so around this, I mean, at some point, you obviously got quite majorly stuck into the studio. Yeah. So what, how did this kind of transition happen in terms of like booking studios and then maybe realising that this was an environment that you really like being in. Yeah, and wanted to sort of be in control of my thing. Um, so we had by, I know, I happen to know, it was the um, 8th of August, 88, it was 888, um, was when we cut Seven Seal um, so by the... You, you weren't tempted by the 777 then? Well, I wasn't around. <laughs> I, was, I would have been 11 years old. Um, but uh, So by a year later, in 1989, I'd got myself a little four-track, um, this, this keyboard here, which is still my master keyboard, a D5, and I put a little analog keyboard down there, a JX3P. Um, and, and that was it. And a, and a pair of little tannoy monitors. Um, so I had a little four-track set up. I used to just, you know, just loved it. You know, just make, doing little tunes all the time. And, you know, you that's you where Dougie's first three Conscious Sounds records were all recorded on that four-track. Um, you, you, you say you love it, but it's, it's, it's not an environment that suits everybody. It's like certain people, they, they fall in love with the studio. And would you say that's an environment that you, you really felt something for? 
yeah, to an extent, to an extent. Although, you know, I know a bit about gear and whatever. I'm not, I'm not that geeky in that sense. I think it's primarily for me, it is a musical thing, without a doubt. Um, I can get sort of a little bit sidetracked into the sort of geeky thing or sort of getting enthusiastic about getting some little bit of kit or something, but it's not... Um, you know, I'm not really a trained engineer in that way. You know, I've taught myself, so... But your mixes of even the earliest stuff, because, like, my introduction to your music was buying things like Natural Roots Man and stuff, I guess, like, yeah. really early 90s, and, and even, yeah. like, um, Manasseh meets Equalizer yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. And it always had, like, a real fidelity to it, your your recordings okay. and productions. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of sounded to my ears that like maybe you really knew what you were doing maybe more than other producers. <laughs> nice one, Steve. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, wow. I mean, you know, I suppose everybody who's um, uh, producing music to any kind of extent would like to think that they just have a sort of instinctive sense of this volume is right, that volume is wrong, that should be louder, you know, um, a kind of way in which they want to present something. Um, and that is just, I don't know, who, who can account for that? That's just instinctive. You know, I know when um, I hear something that sends me, um, that's too loud. That should be a bit quieter. Because not, not everybody does. That's obviously some sort of yeah special skill that you have and especially because a lot of people talk about the very technical side of mixing mm. and producing and i have to have this equipment and that equipment and you seem to be talking more about understanding how the levels work and or just a sort of yeah just an instinctive feeling of like that should be a bit louder that shouldn't you know but there's still bits that where we all go wrong you know where we don't quite get it right um uh you know and i'm very aware of my own sort of um shortcomings you know where like i know when i can be tired i know that when i'm tired i'll start pulling things down i'll start finding everything too loud and you know there's some tricks that you can do to get around that one of which is the one that i most commonly use which is to just um, listen to your stuff very quietly because if you're always blasting it everything sounds too loud if you can't hear something in the mix turn the volume down really low and then you'll be able to hear it you know, if it's in there. Um, another classic another classic one is um, listening mono. So I've got my little mono speaker there and I use that a lot. And there's a, t there's a certain point actually where I'm aware that during mixing, especially when I'm on a sort of deadline, I've got to, you know, get something in and that happens with me a lot because of the time differences in other countries and I have to get the mix over to them by a certain time. Otherwise, I'm going to be drumming my fingers the next day waiting for feedback on the mix. It's um, like a, a different way of like examining it. Yeah, it? yeah. Balancing, it tends to be easier in mono. So, okay, so with the studio, obviously, you now set up a studio and producing things and it's like, but I think of your music is being associated with like a number of labels and, and Riz mm. being the first one I came across. Mm. And were you involved, was that your label? Um, it was four of us. Um, so it was me, it was Gil, who does a lot of the productions for Tough Scout, uh, and two non-musical partners, who's Eddie Joseph um, and his wife at the time, Mac. Um, and it was the four of us that set up Riz. Um, Mac and Eddie would, um, 
you know, deal with all the sort of non-musical stuff, the, you know, pressing records and kind of getting them out to distributors and stuff. Uh, and me and Gil would do most of the music, not all of it. That started off about 1990. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because to say tunes like um, Natural Roots Man and... Yeah. Um, did you do the Be Grateful as well with Danny Red? Yes, yeah. I did, yeah. And they they seemed to they at the time they seemed to be big tunes. They were because you'd hear them in yeah. the dance, yeah. but you'd also hear them maybe in places that weren't you know that would play a bit of reggae or whatever. They seemed to have yeah. a bit of a broader appeal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Natural Roots was um, the music side of it was uh, me and Jeremy the Equalizer, um, and actually it was Jeremy who had the the initial connection to L sixteen. Um, who, to my not to my memory, was like the first um, you know known Jamaican artist that I'd ever worked with, um, and we're still best of friends to this day. Because I re- I kind of half because re- me and Earl have done a few shows, and mm. I kind of half recut it, <clears throat> right? Just to play in these shows, yeah, and then like just 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 like four simple loops or whatever, yeah, yeah. And it's such a great rhythm that it's like I just yeah. I just got these first sounds called up on the system and and, and put the drums down and everything, and it sounded great straight away. It's one of those yeah. rhythms that just works straight away oh, nice. with so few parts, yeah, and it just sounds great. And when you play it out, it completely rocks it as well, yeah. and it's just got that sort of magic quality. To I it. rebuilt it actually a little while ago, about 10, 10 or eleven years ago, because. Um, I got sick of people asking me for it and I didn't have it because I didn't have the multi-track anymore. And, um, but I had all the original drum sound samples from that drum machine that did it. It's an Oberheim drum machine. Um, and, um, and that became a 10-inch that Earl put out called Natural Roots Melody or something like that. It's a melodica cut. I really like that melodica cut, actually. Oh, Earl really likes it. He, he said um, it's the first time that anyone had done an instrumental of one of his tunes. And, and Be Grateful was around at similar kind of time, I bit guess, later, as well. A bit later. So we, we started working with um, Danny Red. We being me and Pepe used to have a record shop in Finsbury Park called Quaff Records and then became Youth Sound. Um, and Pepe had a label called Dreadbeat and there was another guy called Martin Watson or Martin Mad Hatter um, he used to be more around the soul scene. He used to work with um, Trevor Nelson and people like that. Um, and we started working with Danny. We got a bit of money to do that from BMG Publishing, who had signed Danny's publishing. Um, yeah, because I'm sure I remember some major label kind of stuff around. Oh that, yeah, so. yeah. No, so we so we 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 did a record with that little bit of money from the publisher. Um, an album and and yeah, Columbia signed it and put it out. And be grateful was on was be grateful was the was the was was the the, the big sort of roots tune from that. And um, and Pepe had already put it out on a twelve inch and it, actually it was that twelve inch the sort of pre release that you know kind of made it sort of bust on the root scene in, in a good way. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's one of my. Um, sort of tunes I've been involved with which is sort of well up over sort of three or four million on YouTube or yeah whatever. I'm sure yeah. I mean it's a, yeah, a big big tune and yeah. it's got that yeah. timeless yeah and you, you recorded that in your studio yeah mixed it yeah you voiced it there um, we did everything there yeah we did, we did it all in my studio in Brixton yeah um, yeah backing vocals guitar session great guitar session actually by a 
guy called Dan Carey, who's now the famous producer who does all Kate Tempest and people like that. It's him who played the guitar on. It was quite heady times, like the 90s, in terms of um, just the sort of freshness of this music and, and the whole, I guess, side by side with like the dance music kind of revolution that was happening. And Well, I guess you could say, you know, that maybe it was the sort of freeing up of the of the sort of output of the musical industry, that it was freed up from major label control. So perhaps you can say that in the early 80s and the 70s, if you could get a load of money together, you could go to a proper studio and you could record an album. But putting it out, pressing it, getting a pressing a pressing plant to deal with you in the first place is, is quite a different thing. I mean... I'm no expert on the history of the music industry, but I bet you can say that there's a lot, you know, that even just the word indie is a word that I associate with the, from the 80s onwards. You know, I don't think there are that many independent records that came out in the 60s and 70s. Before that, the factories, the plants... Because the majors were, were, had it sewn up. Yeah, the plants would have had direct... They were business. probably owned by the major. Exactly, I don't yeah. know, but, you know, I'm guessing that Decca had their own plant and EMI had their own plant. I know EMI did. Um... You know, and and they 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 controlled it. So maybe what happened in the nineties that sort of made that kind of that vibe of sort of you know we can do this is um, is a mixture of um, well, not a bit of the, what I'm saying is the sort of the the kind of the the coming of kind of affordable studio technology that was that was good enough. You know that you could do you could release a record and it would sound good. It would play out well. Um, all right, it might not sound like, you know, a George Michael tune or whatever, you know, as far as the sort of glitz goes, but... But considering it's made on a budget of a fraction of it. But yeah, it, but it would be cool and the people will respond to it. And, and, and in a way, you know, that, that sort of response from the people in, in a funny kind of way, you know, that's, that becomes like the sort of motivating thing. It's like your thing is working. It doesn't matter if it's in the charts or not. With our music, like when Shaka drops it, you know, everybody goes nuts. That's enough. I'm not really. I'm not, I'm not even thinking about the national charts. It's just a different world, and so maybe you can say that that's what happened in the sort of late '80s and '90s. Is that that little underground music thing became really sort of validated? Well, also around that time as well is um, the sound system as well, which I'm quite interested to to talk about. Our sound system. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So because yeah. you even played in Leicester, didn't you? We did. Yeah, yeah, we played um, played against Tubbies in Leicester. Yeah. How, how was? Do you, any any recollections of that dance? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Please tell me. Oh my god. Yeah. We did okay. We did okay. I think we did better against Shaka. Actually, Tubbies was sort of like taking taking no prisoners. It was a good dance. Well, Tubby Le- Leicester was like Tubby's sort of e- second home. Exactly. Like that. That's it. And the whole hooligan posse in Leicester, and it was kind of it yeah. was yeah. And yeah. I guess at the time as well is. He had that baseline that maybe because this is a little bit before I was into it, you see. But I guess he had that baseline that maybe no one else had as well. And what, what was it? What was it like playing out in those days as well? Because it's like you know, it's different, different period, different era. Um, what can I say about it? Um, well, I suppose you know if you look at it in the in a sort of wider context, um, you know, we came into that whole sort of sound system revolution kind of quite late, actually, that really as far as, um, you know, that that's a time from the sort of the end of the 70s onwards that, 
you know that that uh, I always say actually the film Babylon captures it perfectly. You know there was a, there was a need for sound systems. It wasn't it wasn't a bit different nowadays. You know a lot of people build sound systems nowadays sort of out of desire almost. They just want a big sound system. Yeah, they see people having it, and it's a bit like it's a big gadget to have. But in those days, you know the sound systems in clubs were just not. They, you know, it wasn't there wasn't any choice. You know, if you wanted a big bass and you wanted to put on your own dances and you didn't want to have to hire a club and stuff where you couldn't smoke weed or whatever, and you know, you wanted to go and play out in some hall somewhere or the, or the, you know, the whole the famous warehouse parties of the 80s and 90s, you had to have a sound. You know, there's no, no getting around it. So, some sounds might be more kind of um like sort of proper gear so i'm thinking of joey j and his brother norman their sound system was sort of proper made was that the gt gt thing? sound yeah it was like proper made bins you know it sort of sounded proper um whereas ours was more like a sort of reggae sound you know with kind of homemade sort of style um but yeah you had to there's no getting around it. You know, you weren't going to hire a sound system of somebody. If you were, you know, why well, you just weren't. So that's what kind of inspired you to build a sound, which is that need then. I think also there was desire. We just wanted one. We wanted to have a big sound system. And, you know, um, we were kind of on the hustling, you know, so we had that. We had some cash. But yeah, there, there was no choice. And would you generally play other sounds? It was, it was like... No, we would do a lot of house parties, a lot. Um, like a lot of reggae sounds then, and, and still to an extent now, you do a lot of house parties, somewhere to play some soul, some funk and stuff. It wasn't all um, heavy root sessions, not at all. And, and in fact, actually, it became like, you know, oh, we just want to do some sessions where you can play like, you know, heavyweight style and not have to worry about, you know, um, you know, the, so that the people will come for that. Um, it took a little while to get there, actually, to get to that sort of dub place. And yeah, no, it wasn't all about playing sounds at all. No, the, the, we didn't really start playing sounds until I remember it was probably about yeah eighty seven something like that. I, I can't really remember, but it might even have been that the first sound we played was Joe Warrior in Muswell Hill. It might have been. I'm, I might be wrong about that, but I, I kind of think it is that. And how how was it playing these other sounds back then as well? Because it's kind of. Um, again, it's it's that different era, and I just wonder what kind of recollections you have of how it was, and especially you know maybe people who are listening who are it's kind of you weren't even born then. It, 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 it was and remains very much a confidence thing. You know, I, I think I was a bit of a young tearaway. You know, I had like bundles of confidence, and it's like, yeah, man, I'm going to mash you up, and um, I kind of knew that we had the music to do it, um, and. Yeah, we had some we had some great dances. I mean, really good. Even even the first time we played Shaka, which was a bit scary, but you know, we we got some response. Um, and this was in London, I'm guessing. I was in London in Hackney, yeah. And uh, you know, um, Abishani Joe and a lot of the Tubby's crew always says, you know, you, you guys did really well against Shaka. And and actually, it wasn't that long after the second time that we played Shaka that actually Shaka stopped playing with other sounds. I was going to say because if we talk about it now, I think people who listening who maybe weren't aware of how things were back then yeah. is the idea of Shaka playing another sound is like well I didn't realise he did that but that's, yeah, that's know, how it stopped, was back it then stopped. it's like well quite rightly and, and and in a way you know I sort of feel like now you know nowadays when people ask me to play a sound that's like I'm not gonna do a dub plate 
clash with the sound because I don't have that. I don't put energy into it. You know, it's like if I did, then I would, but I don't. And I'm not really into the whole burial thing and the whole dub plate. Um, you know, the sort of modern concept of a sort of the burial dub plate and sort of, you know, all that. It's not my thing. Um, so, I, you know, I don't mind doing it quite often. I do do it and I'll do it, you know, like sort of three or four people and we'll all, but I, I find artistically actually it's, it's, it's hard to get a vibe going to a playing through, you know, maximum three records and then having to stop. You know, I want to play for like two hours. Obviously you had the sound then and you were starting a studio. The studio continues, but the sound yeah. is no more. So what, Well, the what sound, there was a story there? about that actually, which is that we we were, so I always say, to people who are building sound systems. There's two things that you've got to have that make having a sound system easy. One of them is a storage place that you own, and the other is a van that you own. If you have those two things, it's quite easy having a sound system. If you don't have them, it's a bit of a nightmare, or if you don't have at least one of them. But if you don't have either of them, having a sound is actually quite difficult. Um, so in 96 our sound was being stored at the back of a place in King's Cross called Bagley's, where they used to do a lot of warehouse parties and a lot of club nights. And it was in the back of a sort of um, go-kart track that was in Bagley's. It's all been redeveloped now. Um, and I turned up there one day because Raymond Judah had asked us to do University of Dub, and I went up there to get to pick up some amps to get them serviced. And we found that somebody had taken six out of 12 of the big bass cones and they'd taken our wires bag. And we just took a decision at that point. It was like, you know what? Let's finish this. You know, I don't, we're not massively enjoying it and and there was a a, a thing that it's expensive business uh, it was it? expensive it's a hassle a lot of work and 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 also there's there was a thing then that it was the sort of height of the kind of exterminator thing and that so a lot of good roots music had started coming out of jamaica that we loved all that sizzler stuff and luciano yeah, and me all too. that yeah me too. love it and but the sound was quite subby and it just didn't really work on it was our kind it of sound system. The sound system at all? It's Not really. Different. Or well, actually, what I would say to you is it was designed. You know, maybe it is designed for sound systems. It's designed for Jamaican sound systems, and Jamaican sound systems, by and large, are proper. They're proper gear. They're sort of you know big, you know, um, professionally made cabinet cabinets. Really good equipment. American, you know, Amcron. You know, the sound system of Jamaica is a different thing. That that whole thing about the sort of, you know, the the kind of the homemade homemade sort of you know slightly ragamuffin sound system. That's something that did exist in Jamaica really back in the day. But by the time I went to Jamaica in 1987, I was listening to Jack Ruby and Stereo One and sounds like that. That that their sound was like amazing, fully professional, full range. There's no rasped up bass. On that, you know, they did not sound like Shaka, whereas we followed the Shaka tradition. But the Shaka thing was all about not playing really subby music. So those kind of exterminated production, it didn't necessarily work that well. Well, the sort of Shaka sound and the UK sound is that sort of weight and treble sound, isn't it? Whereas it's a sort of middle of, bass. Yeah. It's not, it's a kind of, you know, you're going to get techie about it. It's sort of like, it's all about sort of 90 to 110 hertz. And it's not really about sort of, 
60 and 70 hertz because a lot of your you know sort of you know traditional scoop type bass bins can't really reproduce that that well because i remember hearing your sound you, it must have been the sort of dying days of the sound or whatever but it was maybe in brixton in a Oh, you know what? You're right. It was. I know exactly where it was in some some private party somewhere. I remember you meet. I think I was the first time I met you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah. I, 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 I gave you a, not yeah. even. A, I wouldn't have even given you a CD because they didn't exist then. In terms of, yeah. I would have given you a, a cassette. Like I'm. I'm no, trying to I make think some CD reggae. Still did exist. By then. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure I gave you a cassette. Yeah. I, I didn't have a CD player for the sound. That's probably more the reality. Yeah. <laughs> But that would have been, I guess, like mid '90s or something, yeah. and it's sort of yeah. towards the end of the running yeah. the sound. But you, but you, would, you were out regularly playing, and you know, we sounded good. We sounded good in in smaller venues. You know, it was really it was enough. Yeah, I yeah it was really good. But you know, the, there's a, just a certain point that you kind of can't go beyond, and you get in some really big dance halls. It's very echoey and stuff. You know, it's actually it's, it's difficult to play. Um, I was I always used to like going to see Shaka in a club called uh, Seven Ladies in Seven Sisters, um, sort of beginning of Finsbury Park, and it was quite small. Shaka sounded wicked in there. You know, I used to love it. And it's I think it's hard to do the music production really full on and run a sound full on as well. Because if if you're going to take it to that next level and really like be the the, the big big sound, then it's going to take over more of your time and energy. I think it was difficult for me and we haven't talked about it yet but it was, it was it was quite tricky to be on kiss fm and to be producing records and to have a sound system that people kind of check you for one thing and the thing that people really checked us for was kiss fm and and i in a way i sort of feel like my my production thing took off more after we finished that well that's definitely like the next thing um it's quite a good segue into it because that's the next thing i wanted to talk about was yeah. obviously you're producing music, you're running a sound system. But this Kiss FM, Kiss FM thing was really a big thing. And my own personal experience of it is my good friend Mark, who, when we were young students, like sharing the house together with some crazy people and whatever, is for some reason he got these tapes of you playing on the radio. And back in those days, mm. that's how people heard music, is yeah. like, especially people who were young and didn't have any money and couldn't buy the records and yeah. were living in places like Leicester where it's hard to get the music. Yeah. These tapes would circulate. Yeah. And we used to listen to the tapes over and over again, and it was just killer after yeah. killer. So yeah. there, there was something... Like an early version of viral, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, th that was... And I was talking to someone the other day about it. I can't even remember where it was, but it's like it was quite a legendary show. So I don't, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about about that. And well, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so um, me and Jeremy, the Equalizer, had been in Jamaica in January, February, nineteen eighty-seven, um, and we came back, and Joey J called me and said we want you to um do you want do you want to do you want to do a late night a late night show on kiss you know and that was it joey 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 and norman j brought us into kiss fm and kiss was still pirate then was it absolutely yeah um there's a funny story actually <laughs> at the end of the very first show me and me and um eddie from manasseh who's sadly no longer with us um we're, we're sort of you know 16 floors up in this tower block in walthamstow we just finished the show two police cars we look out the window and two police cars going wow sort of steaming into the you know the we could see them in the car park below us 
And we're like, oh my God, numbers <laughs> up. what is going on? And we're just freaking out. It's like, we're going we're gonna to get flung into jail, you know. Da, 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 da. Anyway, it turned out the police car, the police cars had come for something else. It was nothing to do with it. They didn't know the radio station was there. It was funny. Well, pe- um, people have gotten, because, you know, the current days of internet radio, whatever, people had no idea the lengths you yeah. used to have to go to to broadcast music. And oh, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, it, it was a very privileged time to do radio um well to put it a different way i think the whole of sort of mainstream radio history was a very privileged time to do radio up until the big expansion of the internet that's what's changed it so you know i, I would say that you know okay you know, the Manasseh and Kiss FM might have been particularly underground, but nevertheless, probably tapes of John Peel from the 60s were also pretty sought after and probably did the rounds as well, is that any radio was special because if they were playing something on the radio that you didn't have it, one, it might either drive you nuts until you did have it, um, or, you know, that, that, that was just it. You just couldn't get the music, you know, now, you know, we'll grow up with a whole generation of kids who will, you know, just think they can have anything. They can have it all, and they can, by and large. But there were other people playing music on the radio around that time, but there seemed to be something special about that. I mean, did, did it feel... There weren't many, you know, you know what, there weren't, not on Roots. In, in Roots music, there, there weren't that many. Um, you know, I'm aware of, like, one or two. There was Dub Bug, who was great on... Um, Station FM out of East London. There was a few, but not that many. Um, and have you had people still remind you to the day of like the legendary factor, the sort of status of your radio show and the oh, passing the of tapes? God, people still talk time. about it so, yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the time. I get emails all the time saying, "Yeah, there is this tune that you played on the radio, and can you tell me what this?" Um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'm. I'm very aware of it. I'm very aware of it. I'm proud of it. You know, I was talking to Buttons the other day, the um, famous trombone trombone. player. Yeah. Um, You know, we were just talking about that thing, you know, like the the way Roots is now. And, you know, he he, he, he was totally acknowledged. You know, in that little period there, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, not just us, but us and other people, we kept it alive. We kept the Roots thing alive. It really, really helped me just to listen to like the the the, the um, consistency of the selection and kind of and to hear all these rare tunes and yeah. kind yeah. of it it really helped me like really fall in love with roots reggae. It was well, it was also I think a, a big part of um, you know a lot of the producers reissuing their catalogs as well. Um, so you know about let's say th- three years after. We were on Legal Kiss, you know, suddenly all the Yabby U catalogue was available again, all the Pablo catalogue was available again, on vinyl, on 7-inch, not bad quality, you know, stuff that you just could not, you know, it was like serious money tunes you could suddenly get again. Um, yeah, you know, the... Because I guess Kiss was quite... Because obviously I'm in, I'm in Leicester, so we had our own um, pirate radio there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was a it was a popular thing in Leicester, definitely. Um, and um, but but we didn't have Kiss. But I'm guessing Kiss was quite a big thing here. 
It was like widely it was listened because to. It was, yeah, it was because it was diverse. So for every... You know, in 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 a funny kind of way, you could say that that, that Kiss FM was a bit sort of schizophrenic because on the one side there was sort of us and Joey J appealing to all the dub heads, but the main draw of Kiss was about Paul Anderson, who sadly died recently, and Norman Jay, and you know um, the funk and soul thing that that you know, and Kiss was massive for that. You know, had the had the good the good DJs. You know, really did um, on many different levels. On you know, working right across the sort of the spectrum of the sort of audiences in London, you know, um, Kiss was absolutely killing it, um, but in many different areas. So, for you to get a show on on such a sort of successful label, but I mean, a station, sorry, but a station that had the cred as well, and like the people yeah. tuning in because they know they're going to listen to something kind of interesting, and it's, I guess, it's like it's like the perfect time to be playing all these like roots classics to people who. Maybe well, it was it was a good time, yeah. So the amount of people that sort of you know say to me, "Oh, I used to listen to your show. I used to come out of the clubs at three o'clock in the morning, put the radio on. There was Manasseh on the, you know, put proper dub music, you know, da 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 da." Um, yeah, I, I think um, Gordon Mack, who ran Kiss, who, who who's um, you know likes his reggae, but he's not a, he's not a you know roots person in that way. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, had a great you know, vision to keep us in there. You know, we were quite, we, you know, we sort of stuck out like sore thumbs in a way, you know, well, as it was a sort of soul boys. And it was a hardcore show. It wasn't like, oh, let's try and play something that people yeah. might understand or like. It's like you were playing like, you know, yeah. the, the original Roots reggae. And I guess that is one of the sort of problems, if you like, of kind of reggae and dub is, is mm. getting, um, is, is, is people getting access to it because it's not in the major media channels no. and stuff for, for this time Kiss is a big thing and you're playing these kind of undiluted music show to people well there was a, there was definitely a thing with Kiss that I sort of you know when it, when it went legal you know began to understand the sort of nuts and bolts of it and how it all worked and um, so you, you could say that our show um was the you know part of the beginning of what you would call specialist radio shows, which is now you know taken for granted that, but actually that didn't exist before. So you you know you could say in in the eighties that you could listen to Radio One all day and all night, and there would not be a, a themed radio show on there. It's no, you just get in the hits until John Peel yeah, comes along, or even album tracks or whatever, but not a themed radio show. Maybe on Radio Two, yeah, you might have had sort of you know hits from the movies or something, but there wasn't specialist shows in that way. And how it worked on KISS was um, that um, up till seven in the evening would be playlisted and would be sort of, you know, not mainstream, still soul music, it was, it was black music. Um, and then after 7pm would be the specialist shows. So sort of moving on to sort of other stuff that's, that's sort of been happening and kind of um, you... Produced the music for the Roots Garden label, yeah. And um, John at Roots Garden, he was one of the first people to ever book me to play a oh, session outside of Leicester nice. in the sort of late nineties, and yeah. it was really like a big event. And me and Richie Roots, who I set the Scoops label up with, we went down yeah. and played, and it was like, and it was really like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we've got some records out, and we've been booked, and things are happening, and yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you're obviously involved in doing the music for the label but it's, it's put out some some really great music and I was wondering if you want to talk about that Roots Garden label yeah, at all yeah absolutely yeah I mean there's a nice um, there's a nice link actually between Roots Garden and Riz which is that um, 
just towards the end of Riz, we did a couple of tracks with Johnny Osborne and we released one of them on Riz and that's called Rise Up. Um, and there was one that we hadn't released. It's called Black Star Liner. And that became the first tune on Roots Garden. And that's nice. And John knew about that tune. John had it on dub and was like, you know, why don't we release that? And that, that became the first record on, on Roots Garden. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Roots Garden's great. I love it. You know, I talk about it a lot, a lot in interviews. You know, John has a great... Um, John, who sort of runs the label side of it, has a great temperament and a great sort of head for um, for running a Roots label. You know, he does it really well. Um, and how does it operate in terms of you working together and deciding what to put out? And... I'm really running stuff by him. I really am. I'm, you know, um, uh, like everything in production nowadays, the internet is quite crucial. So it's all about, you know, sending out MP3s and, you know, Poor old John, sometimes I'll bombard him with sort of, you know, like so and so rough mix five, you know, I've turned down the clav slightly away. You know, it's like, yeah, sounds great. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I need that. I need somebody to feed back off. I do, you know, I need somebody to, this re is really important. I've always said that about um, whoever I'm doing music with, it doesn't matter how, whether they play anything or not, I'm going to really go i'm going to really lean on them a lot and it doesn't even matter now it doesn't even matter if they're there i used to say it's the person on the sofa is just as important as me but but it's it doesn't matter where they are now because it's all about you know sending that sending out an, an, an mp3 and getting feedback and that, that that is crucial yeah i think that's something a lot of people don't realize is they maybe see or hear you know nick manasseh in the manasseh studio or whatever producing these tunes and maybe doing it in like isolation but it's just not like that is it because nah. there's a whole even if the, the sort of solitary producer is is playing music to people and getting feedback from people and kind of that that's a really important part of the process and it's really it's really important it's, and even just a even just a sort of little you know geeing you up you know somebody gets back to me and go oh that is that sounding wicked you know, you love that. that. You need that. It's really and important. The opposite as well. Of like, that doesn't sound so yeah, good. Yeah, well, that's not working. Oh, I preferred it before. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's really important. Because the whole, really obviously, is. the old records that, that we love so much, there was a lot of people involved in those. You've got producers, engineers, um, the, the band in the studio, the vocalists. There's, there's quite a lot of sort of people who are maybe commenting and listening and that's true that the sort of solo producer thing that there's a bit of a less of a oh, connection absolutely. to that i mean really when you're talk, if you're talking about 70s reggae um the most significant part of how it sounds is the original recording engineer from the original live session because you're having to record everything onto four tracks so it's drums on one track bass on another track music on another track and then the last track for vocals. So once you've got a four-track multi-track that's that submixed to that extent, all you can do is bring out the treble on the drums a little bit or bring out the bass on the drums or whatever. Um, you can't do that much. The sound is set. You know, I've I've you know, I remember being at King Tubby's and mixing for dub plates, mixing old Freedom Sounds multi-tracks. You put on that those Freedom Sounds 4 tracks, they sound exactly like the record. There's not much, you know, so, so it's all about the the choices that the original engineer made. So, you know, you, you, they're all at Harry J's or whatever, or Dynamics, and they, they, you know, they are playing through a 16 or a 24 channel mixing desk, 
but all those channels are being routed to one of only four channels. So that tape can then be sent to like Tobby's to be mixed yeah. or whatever. But basically, it's it's four track. Um, even with eight track, it starts to get a bit more like you've actually got separate instruments. You can do a radically different mix. One one engineer will do a very very different mix of an eight track tape than another engineer will do. But four track, it's totally changes. There's actually not that much you can do. And you, so you made the trip to Jamaica and went to to King Tubby Studio. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. And and what what was that like? Uh, that was pretty bonkers, you know. That 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 was not. So I was there with um, Jeremy the Equalizer, and um, and what what kind of year would this have been? This is this is just before we came back and joined Kiss FM. It's like January, February, nineteen eighty seven. Um, so I would have been twenty one. Um, the um, it was not what we were looking to do. What we were looking for is to go and get unreleased mixes um when we got there tubby said to me he said oh it's a shame you know we didn't we, we didn't realize you were coming we could have gone through the library <laughs> so but that is not what happened what they did instead of getting any unreleased mixes we just went there with a bunch of multi-tracks but a bunch of half inch tapes and they shoved me onto the mixing desk and go, there you go mix your dub plates straight onto dub so and these not onto, not onto quarter inch tape was mixed straight the, into the, the dub cutter. The, the head is cutting the yeah. the, the lacquer yeah, as we speak. Yeah. And and the the multi track tapes are what what are they? Half inch four track. Yeah, no, but what what's the music on them though? It's all the freedom sounds tunes. So it's not your tunes. It's no. this. No. The tapes. And what a trip! Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And and how how long did you spend there? That whole day. And you were there with King Tubby, yeah. And what, well, he was in the office. He yeah, came in but you every, met him every now and then, and told everybody to stop smoking in the studio. And, and what, know, what was he like? I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times, but what was he like? Lovely, very lovely, fatherly, you know, father figure. Kind, you know, really nice, very nice person. You know, nice, very friendly face. A lot of a lot of people in um, it's a sort of chicken and egg thing of like. Um, how do you get to become a sort of Tubby's-like figure? Well, it's because you've got that welcoming character in the first place. You're not going to get there. You know, if you're some sort of, you know, screwy kind of, you know, person who doesn't like people or whatever, you're not going to be in that position in the first place. It's sort of, you know, I'm guessing that a lot of them are a bit like that. I don't really know. I don't really know. I don't know what Coxon's like as a person I've never met him. I don't know what Duke Reed is like. I think Duke Reed was a fairly entertaining character. I don't really know, but all I know is that there is a sort of culture in Jamaica and in everywhere, really, of like, you, you, you get a person who people are kind of happy to gather around that person. Yeah, I think you have to I often think Mark Iration has it a bit. I always say it to Mark. I love, I love going out to Leeds and sort of seeing Mark and got all his people around him. I think Mark has it a bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to welcome Mark onto the podcast yeah, as well yeah. at some point. So I hope you don't got, mind me saying that. Mark. We've got a lot. No, no, no. We've got, we've got a lot of history. It's definitely. It's a compliment. It is, man. It's a compliment. No, no. It's, you got that. I'm sure he'll take that as a compliment. Well, it's not going to start like, wrapping things up now. Yeah. Um, it's been 
very interesting talking to you about all this. Um, and w- one of the things I'm asking all of my guests is yeah. like the book of Dub. We're going to open the book of Dub. We're going to write your name. Yeah. And what what would what would you like to be written next to it in terms of you know what's if it's a overall contribution or a single thing or is there something you think yeah well I you know that's that's kind of what I've done or what I did or something I'd like to add you know under my name in the book of Dub. Skank sound. I like my skank sound. The skank sound. Yeah. It's quite important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I like I like layering up skank sounds, and I, I, I like it. So yeah. Nick Nick Manassa, skank creator sound. of some great skank sounds, yeah. of yeah. a great skank sound. Yeah, I do like it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, often, I often find it tricky sometimes. People send me a tune to mix, and there's just like a piano, and it's like oh, I want more. You know, I want a guitar on there. I want some, something else. You know, um, I like I love it when you've got you know maybe up to four instruments playing skank parts, all with little different offbeats and stuff like that. But together, they make one sound. And I'm, I'm always talking about that with bands and stuff, you know, is that when it's right, the music becomes like one animal. It stops being a collection of separate instruments that you hear all separately. It just becomes like one animal, one thing. Well, Nick, thank you very much. You. So thank it was a do. pleasure. Nice. And uh, yeah. onward and forward. Forward, yeah, always forward. Thanks for joining me for this second episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Please subscribe to the show wherever you pick up your podcasts, visit the website lifeindub.com and feel free to email me at vibronics at gmail.com with any comments and suggestions for the show. I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.